gentlemen welcome to the insider's edge podcast here on the wzwa network in conjunction with all of you out there i mean you guys are the ones that drive this show we we're not in conjunction with anyone anymore it's you guys you're the reason that we're all here for the insider's edge we've reached episode 100 already at this point this will be coming out a few weeks after that i'm your host with the most on the west coast california and very it is a joy and honor and a privilege to be with you all once again and for me here this is this is another name ticked off the bucket list here to interview because i obviously look i'm a big fan of ecw and i've been trying to get a lot of different people personalities from ecw on the show to learn about their story think about the likes of john Finnegan, Jim Molyneux, Bob Artis, not just the wrestlers, because some other guys in this company also have a story to tell in here, right here, right now. I have ring announcer extraordinaire, the one and only Stephen DeAngelis. How are you, my friend? Good morning, Carl. How are you guys doing? <laughs> doing good, bro. Doing good. It's hot and sweaty out here right now. It's hard to believe that at midnight. But it's, but it's midnight. But it's midnight where you are, and it's that hot and sweaty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's this is Australia. Um, <laughs> uh, but Stephen, thank you so much to uh, for you know uh, agreeing to to talk with me here today. And uh, the, the first question, as per usual, sir, is before you got involved, how, how did you become a fan of professional wrestling? Uh, actually, I wasn't a fan of professional wrestling. Uh, I was, you know, I was aware of it like every kid is, but I really took more of a deep dive into it in my my profession. I'm a casting director, which I don't know if you knew that or not. But yes. but I, as a result, I was working on a campaign for a Miller Lite, which is a beer here. And I don't know if you recall the commercials that um, that were spoofs of WrestleMania called Lightomania, and yes. they had an American former baseball player, then turned comedian Bob Uecker as the lead. And he was wrestling and Jesse, the body Ventura were involved. And there were all these other celebrities to give it a celebrity rub. And I cast those commercials. So therefore I had to do a lot of research going in like six months in advance of, of the shoot and who we would ask and, and what we would do. And, uh, and even finding, you know, Bob Uecker worked under a hood in the mask because you know, obviously he wasn't going to do the wrestling moves. And I don't know if you remember, um, remember a, WWF character slash shady referee slash wrestler named Dangerous, Dangerous Danny Davis. Yeah. <laughs> and, Dan, and I wound up casting Danny Davis as the stunt double doing all the wrestling stuff for Euchre. So, but then I had to get all these other celebrities like Robert Goulet and all these other Las Vegas types involved in the shoot. Um, and so that was, you know, that was my first exposure. So I had a stack of wrestling magazines in my office for research. I went to an old shops and I did a lot of research and I was just finding out more and more about what I was trying to replicate in this camp because it was going to be a campaign. It wasn't going to be a one shot. So I had to get to know where this thing was headed. Um, and so I, I wound up, that's how, that was my first exposure exposure. And then it, the world took a strange turn for me because um, the ad advertising agency I was working for at the time had a client uh, there was a charity. It was one of the first wish granting charities before Make-A-Wish called the Starlight Foundation. And they, um, I got involved with them uh, through the agency and they had an emergency um, 
and which I helped them solve and with reaching a celebrity. So I get a call from the office one day from them saying, hey, you know, we, we've, we've got this child in Philadelphia who has probably two weeks to live and he wants to meet these certain wrestlers. So, um, so he, had a, he had a list of his, of his favorites and said, you know, if we could arrange one or more, that would be great. Can you do it? It was a Friday afternoon at like four o'clock New York time. And um, he, so I called WWE. And of course, because they worked for WCW and WA at the time, I called the office. I asked for these guys and they say, there were no professional wrestlers by that name. Because if you didn't work for them, you weren't a professional wrestler. So then I, then I start going through the magazines. And, oh, wait a minute. They're, they're NWA guys. So I went and I tried to nose around. I couldn't find anybody. I couldn't get to anybody. But then I thought, okay, well, when's the next show in Philadelphia? Let me look at that. The next show was the Philadelphia Coliseum was the next night, that Saturday. And then they were doing repair work for three months. So they, no, there was going to be no wrestling in that building. NWA wouldn't be back in Philly. They were back monthly like WWE used to be in New York. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So I get the information on the family. I get up the next morning. I take a train to Philadelphia. I go to the phone booth in Philadelphia back when they had phone booths. I call limousine companies. I get a limousine company, actually the owner, I talked him into it, uh, drove me around all day wherever I needed to. And he was the driver. And he drove me around to make this wish happen. I was dressed in a suit and tie in an attache case. I went to the Philadelphia Coliseum. They weren't going to stop a black stretch limo. I got backstage. I was nosing around. Um, wound up talking to somebody in promotion there who said, oh, yeah, we'll help you. And then that person ghosted me and disappeared. So the show's ticking. These guys are flying out of town. What am I going to do? The person who helped me at the time was, uh, was J.J. Dillon. Because I went up to him and I recognized him and, you know, I had a, like a little cheat sheet with like photos clipped out from the wrestling magazine, like who people were that I might run into. So I explained the situation. The first match was a six man tag with Kendall Windham, Tim Horner and late Brad Armstrong. And so he went up to them and said, hey, go with this guy. They were still in their gear. They grabbed their luggage. They didn't even change. They were like, you have to go, you know, go with them. We went to the kid's house. We showed up at the kid's house. The family had no idea what the heck was going on, except these three wrestlers show up. <laughs> we do the wish. And at the time, um, Brad and Tim told him, the kid's name was Troy, said, Troy, you know, we fly out of here tonight because they were going on a private plane. I had to get them back to the airport, by the way, in the meantime, to catch their, their charter back to Atlanta to do live TV. We were wrestling for the belts and we're going to win the belts for you tomorrow morning. So we did the meeting, we did the whole thing. It was great. Flew down. Um, they won the belts that morning. They're screaming at the TV, Troy, Troy, these are your belts, Troy. We won them for you. Of course, the announcers are like, who's Troy? <laughs> they have no idea. They're thinking that maybe it's introducing a new character or something. They're, they're trying to cover it up. Um, and so I wound up getting involved, you know, I got it. So I did that one wish and then I started getting more and more and I did entertainment wishes, but whenever there was a wrestling thing, they would call me. Um, so then, so I'm trying to learn a little bit more because if I'm getting these calls, I better know who, where people are. And I did a charity softball game uh, for GQ magazine, which was different 
all different all-star teams. And so because it was in the summer, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do because the baseball players are all, you know, everyone's in season and the off season folks moved over down in Florida. What am I going to do? I'm driving home one night. I hear uh, this radio, this thing called wrestling spotlight with a guy named John Arezzi, who is now back online and airing his old shows and doing a lot of stuff. So I reach out to John Arezzi and I say, do you know anybody who lives in, lives in New York? And he says, oh yeah, there's this tag team, the Power Twins, uh, who live out on Long Island. And there's this guy named Paulie Dangerously who lives in Scarsdale. <laughs> so I reached out to Paul and we met and he was like, absolutely. So that's how I became friendly with Paul. Paul actually played on the, if you can imagine Paulie Dangerously playing in a celebrity softball game and he played the we, we rotated celebrities because we had so many so he played the first three innings and then he did play-by-play the rest of the game <laughs> so if you have you never probably imagine paul being so knowledgeable of baseball and, and softball and stuff but he really was it was pretty fascinating uh among the people who were on that team were a couple of people who rose to prominence in on soaps uh laura sisk who's now laura wright who's on general hospital plays carly and also uh kelly ripa who had just started on All My Children and I was supposed to have a successful career as a talk show host and, you know, in the U.S. So, you know, that was my start of my relationship with Paul. And because of that, Paul would say, hey, I'm driving out to Philadelphia. This is when Eddie was still there and he was going. He said, what, Gilbert was involved. He said, he said, you want to drive down to Philly? You want to travel down to Philly? So that's how I wound up backstage at the shows through my friendship with Paul. But no indication that I would ever wind up doing anything out front. I was just there, you know, he just wanted my feedback. He wanted my feedback as someone who's an entertainment professional, what I thought in terms of um, television and things. And, and like when the unique problem, things would happen, like there was the, the famous cage match between uh, Bad Company and Public Enemy that with the exploding cage, the company that was supposed to deliver the cage that day um, didn't wind up, had some sort of conflict and somebody came along with more money and wanted to rent every shark cage they had, because that's what they use the shark cage, they use the water. And somebody wanted to do an excursion, so they didn't have anything. So I had to, so I'm in New York and I'm scrambling to try to get some sort of cage structure to the arena in Philadelphia. That one, that's why it didn't like quite look exactly like a cage. It was as close as we could get with, you know, with 12 hours notice. (laughs) But uh, so, so my relationship always was, you know, Paul would call me and say, Hey, what do you think? And, you know, I would come to the, I would go to the shows in New York and, and I thought it would be good for me because we've got all these wrestling related wishes. If I know somebody, it's always going to be somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. And if you have to get, if the clock is ticking on a child who's ill and every minute counts, I can't wait on Friday till Monday till the office is open for the wrestling conference. It's better for me to know, you know, and there was no Zoom then, there was none of that stuff. We had to figure out if it was possible to get the kid to them or them to the kid. So that was that was my real that was my real um, source of my friendship because when you bond over that kind of stuff, it's 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 a different it's a different thing. It's not it's just, it goes beyond it goes beyond friendship. It goes beyond acquaintance because you become allies together in a mission yeah. that matters and is, is changing not only for the for the child who's ill but also uh, what that represents for the family who has a kid who's ill who um, who gets to see their kid happy. You know, as opposed to what watching them suffer towards the end, it was a different thing. And yeah. so, you know, I, I, I mean, listen, I could tell you, and it may shock people, or maybe not, 
but I could list the, the, the amount of stuff that Paul Heyman has been instrumental in, in terms of wish granting um, and connecting me with talent and, and other things um, is pretty staggering. They actually, the, the charity actually honored him one year, um, certainly honored him, but, uh, but he really, he did nothing about getting publicity for himself about it ever. He, he always kept it on the key, on the down low. I always appreciated that about him. Um, and that's why, you know, that's why I, you know, I, maybe I got to see a, a side of him that few people get to see or share or, or whatever, but, but, uh, that's how that, that's a long answer to how did I get in? I got in because of Paul and then they were doing a show on, I had some wish kids on Staten Island, uh, at a show and three families. I was coming from work. I had a big meeting. I was in a suit. Um, the ring announcer's car broke down, couldn't make it in New York at the time there was a curfew. So you had to get everything done by 11 o'clock. So they had to start the show on time. So Paul was like, you're in a suit, go out there. And so I went out there and um, he, I just did what I thought was my impersonation of what somebody was. And, uh, and I think the thing that turned, cause I was, you know, I mean, the, the fans were horrible to me cause I was somebody they didn't recognize. So <laughs> yeah. New York fans just booing the hell out of me. And there was this, and, and I think the thing that turned the tide for Paul in terms of me doing more was there was a guy in the front row and I'll clean this up, but he was screaming in the front row, ring announcer, I slept with your mother, but not saying it so politely. <laughs> so he's saying it over and over and over again. Of course, this camera's ringside. So, um, so the mic is going to pick it up. So I think, oh my God, security's going to throw this guy out. The fans are going to turn on me thinking I had him thrown out. Okay, yeah. So I, so I go to do the next, so I go to, just before the next match, I stop and I say, ladies and gentlemen, and I pause knowing he's going to scream it. So I say, everyone hold, hold up for a second. And I got out of the ring with the microphone and I put them, I said, I turned right, right to interrupt him nose to nose and say, do you have something you had to say to me? And I put the mic right in his face and he screamed, ring an answer. I, your mother. And I turned to him and said, Dad, you're drunk. Go home. And turned around, <laughs> went into the ring, and uh, and the whole place popped. He got recognition, and Paul said, "You can do this whenever you want." So how much do you want to do this? And that was and that was actually the turning point for me doing things more regularly. Uh, and then I did the New York shows and wherever. And then um, you know I love. I'm a big fan of Bob Ortiz. He and his wife Lex have always been very gracious to us. Um, he had seasonal conflicts because he ran a hockey arena. Yeah. So during cold weather season, he was not available because he was running his business. And so I would go into, that's when I started doing the Philadelphia shows uh, and they were always great. And I, I always will say that uh, I was a guest in Bob Ortiz's house because that was really, Bob was there. He was, you know, he worked with Todd Gordon during Tri-State and all those things. So um, he and his wife are terrific people. Um, they, they were, you know, they were very supportive of me. Um, and so, so that's the, that's the, that's the intro. Like how the heck does all this happen from someone who knows nothing about it to someone who's now involved and has a lot of friends and watches, you know, to check up on people. And I, and I watch regularly, you know, I pretty much try to watch everything if I can. Um, yeah. and, and that's, that's how that all happened. <laughs> that, uh, I think that has to be one of the most unique answers I've ever had. 
for somebody when I ask, how did you become a wrestling fan or how did you get involved in the business? That has to be with the most unique answer because usually it's like, oh, well, me and my grandmother or my grandfather used to watch WWWF on this channel at this time. And it's always the same kind of answer. Um, but so this is interesting. It's a nice, unique perspective. I like it. I always, I always looked at it because I come from a theatrical background. Yeah. I always looked, I always, I always looked at it like it was a theatrical piece. I looked at each match like it was a morality play and you're developing the story of each chapter. So I, my perspective was really, was really from an entertainment point of view in terms of, you know, getting, you know, it's like a performer who's on stage who's giving a performance and they have to get whatever they're doing on stage and get it across the footlights to the audience and, 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 and create an emotional connection and get them invested. Yeah. So I was fascinated how different people would do, do things differently. You know, what their personal style was for engagement. It's like actors who have great amount of range themselves in terms of their portrayals yeah. and the roles they play. So I, so I, you know, I still, I still can't help but think of it that way. You know, when I, when I watch it now, you know, do I think it's too much television and not enough live performance, like caring what the live audience is getting as opposed to what the television audience is getting? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I liked it more when you were watching television and you were seeing the experience of the audience. Yeah. Now, now you know, really, and, and you knew that was happening. Now I feel like there's too much um, predetermined or premeditated, you know, and then, and then you get into, I won't get into it too much, but even like, you know, the piping in of the crowd noises and the chants. Oh, and, and like, don't get me started. It's, it's, so I, so I, so I, so I, you know, cause I, cause I think, cause I think that's, um, that's offensive to the audience. Yes. You know, not valuing them or feeling like you have to tell them what to do. It's like, well, then why don't we do what we did during the pandemic and just pipe in the crowd? You know, they got away with a lot of it when they were, you know, during the last 18 months. And I think they thought, well, we can continue to do that. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, but that, but so, so to, to answer your question, it's always been, you know, it's always been theater to me. You know, it's always, it's always been about that connection and, and taking the audience on a, on a ride and, and um, and having a great appreciation, also, you know, artists in, in theater and film and in their acting career and singing career, they make sacrifices to get where they need to be. And you know, I'm I'm aware of those. Um, I wish that wrestling fans were equally aware of the sacrifices that the uh, that the wrestlers make. Definitely, and uh, uh, they, I mean. I just wanted to talk about um, you as a ring announcer and it's just a something I haven't got it written down or anything. It's something that I thought of, uh, uh -huh. you know, you're talking about the performance that you would put on and, and the way that you saw things. When I used uh -huh. to see you do your ring announcing, even though you were standing still at one spot, so much energy <laughs> was coming out of you. Uh, you. You could really feel it. And uh, you, you were, it felt like you were putting your whole body into it, despite the fact you were standing still. Uh, so that's just one compliment I wanted to give you, sir. That, well, thank you. That, the origin of that is interesting because um, I always felt like because of my origin in this whole thing, I always felt like I was much more one of them than one of the in-ring performers. Right. And so I wanted to say if one of the audience members had a chance to be in the center of this ring, what would that feel like for them? That energy, that enthusiasm, that sense of, oh my God, I'm here in the middle of this great opportunity. Um, and then it was interesting because 
you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a character guy. I'm not a chiseled, you know, traditional ring announcer in any way, look wise, you know? And so I thought, so I went to Paul and I said, Hey, you know, I said, I really want to do it. Like I'm the most, the most enthusiasm I can. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, did you, you know, are familiar with a movie called Scanners? It was a sci-fi movie, but I said, I said, you ever see Scanners? Because the idea was when, when um, things would happen, their heads would pop off. I said, I want to do ring announce as if, if I lift up one more, one more second, my head will explode. I said, because if we're going to be extreme, I don't want to be, I don't know that I should be the traditional guy that frames the, the introduction of ca new characters and, and wrestlers in a traditional way. We've got to be plus that. So I said, how yeah. would you feel about doing that? I mean, trying that. And he said, well, try it. And he was like, love it. <laughs> Afterwards, <laughs> he, says, he says, as long as you can, as long as you can maintain your voice and have a voice at the end of the night, you know, do it. And so that's what, that's how it happened. That's how that, that's how that, that's how that evolved. Because I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I can't be the guy that brings the energy of the room down. You know, and especially in Philadelphia and New York with those fans, they're so, you have to match them and then I have to get over them to be able to yeah. keep them hyped. And also, you know, matches happen where the audience is drained because they've, they've committed so much. And how do I keep that up? You know, how can I keep the energy up for the, for the audience and for the performers so that they're not, they're not two thirds of the way through the show burnt out? What can I, what, how can I contribute to help them to help the main event guys still get the recognition they deserve. And That's so I it. always looked at it like a, a graduation of steps. Um, and so that was, that was just my, that was just my personal theory. Not, listen, I'm sure I'm not, I'm sure I'm not everyone's taste. Uh, I, in fact, I know so, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but for, but for the job that I, I had to do and my obligation to the performers, um, I felt like I, that's what I, I owed them a hundred percent because that's the kind of person I am. If I'm working on a project, you get a hundred percent of me. So that's exactly it. And that, that crowd in Philly or anywhere, really any sort of ECW crowd, the energy is you're right. It's so hot. The whole show, the whole show, right. you can't right. be having the ring announcer just being like, and uh, ladies do the next match uh, schedule for one fall is uh tag team contest. Like they, they wouldn't, they, it wouldn't work really, would it? If, if the ring announcer was, was being like that, it works so much more that you're that animated. So right, I totally right, agree right. with what you have to say right, there. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, so being a ring announcer and having not really been a uh, massive fan of professional wrestling, right. um, being an ECW, you have a pretty damn good seat in the house to see some of these crazy moments and antics is there anything that stands out from your time in extreme championship wrestling where you saw something happening and you're like i can't believe that they're doing this right now well when there was the match with terry funk and shane um i think it was terry and shane and mick was involved and there was a branding iron and the branding iron dropped on the mat <laughs> And I ran over and grabbed the end of the branding iron because I was afraid it was going to burn the match. But then I'm like, holy crap, I'm holding a burning branding iron. Like, how long can I hold this before it gets too hot? And they had had a bucket of water, thank God, nearby. And I was able to put it in the bucket. But I was like, that, that was a moment where I thought, okay, 
you let your emotions get away with you now. What do you do? Um, listen, anytime, anytime the audience was legitimately surprised, I loved. Um, anytime someone, you know, won a title, you know, because that would be a career advancement. I mean, I, I, it's funny to say that I wouldn't think that one thing stood out to me. Every show was really about the whole experience of the whole card, mm. you know, as opposed to it being one particular match or moment, because I know everything sets up again. I think like theater, everything sets up everything else. But, you know, there, there were a few things I'm, just, I'm trying to think, you know, listen, I I didn't I didn't announce the show, but I was there. Um, seeing Terry Funk win that belt to me was was awesome. Uh, I I I will tell you one of the most interesting things was watching after the show, watching the promo, watching the promos get shot. And in some <laughs> ways, the promos were more memorable, as or as as memorable as the show, because I was there when Steve Austin did his whole Monday Night oh. thing. Yeah. At the travel lodge, you know, I was there when Mick Foley did the the whole Kane Dewey uh, promos and those things. So seeing those happen and anticipating how they were going to affect the next show, again, thinking theatrically, that that's what that's what interested me. Uh, but when you see people evolve and develop, um, and you see somebody like Nova, who basically started out as a you know a part of the BWO. And use more as a comedy guy, you know. And then he wound up working on himself and working on his skills. And then towards the end of ECW, he was a terrific. He became a terrific worker in a more traditional sense, and and someone who could really hang in the ECW. And he went from from one perception and shifted it all. And that was his dedication and hard work, you know. So, so you know, I, I you know, watching everybody. Um, develop their skills and you know also feeling like they had a place to be creative i think was important uh and watching their creativity blossom so I, i'm sorry i'm sorry i can't come up with a more specific answer for okay. you but um i i mean to me it was always about the pro you know it was always the pro the process was the was the reward you know what i mean how they how they decided to have certain you know how certain things evolved and unfolded and watching the, um, the wrestlers benefit from that and watching their skills improve and watching them develop their connection, you know, and you have somebody like, you know, Doring and Roadkill who started out working together and started out and watching them become so popular when they really started from scratch in front of an audience, they had no, they didn't exist anywhere else before UCW. So when you watch somebody, you watch Paul take, take people like that and help build them to main event status, you know, or combinations of of um, of workers together. That that was always that was always interesting to me. Absolutely, I totally agree. And, and and I've seen quite a lot of ECW from over the years. And I always thought this to myself. You know, I would watch WCW, I'd watch WWF, and I'd always say, "Oh, they're not using this guy right," or they're not really making the most out of this person. But I look up and down the ECW roster. 
and not one person I couldn't I could never really think of one person that I thought wasn't used correctly or given an opportunity to show what they can do and that's one of the magic things about ECW was it didn't matter who it was he would find a spot for them and they'll be able to blossom that spot and not one person I could say oh he, he really didn't do good by him everyone seemed to be uh looked upon um to, to a higher standard as far as I'm concerned well, that's because that's because Paul listened to the crowd. Paul watched the crowd. He listened to the crowd. That that was that's that's all the difference to me, is that is that he Paul didn't have such an ego that he had to say I'm going to make this happen. He had an end goal, but if he had to take a detour to get there, he didn't he didn't mind doing that. You know, if he needed to involve other characters in it and help enhance them on their way, he didn't mind that. You know, and also the other thing is that that ECW locker room was so collaborative. You know, if someone had an idea, they could go to Paul and say, hey. You know, what do you think about this? We've all had it. We've all, you know, we've all gone to him with ideas that have been put on television and affected matches and and some would have an idea and he'd say. He'd say, go over with, on the corner with so-and-so. He's going to explain to you what this is going to be. You know, and, that, and that's how things evolve. People had ideas from themselves. They had ideas for other people. And if Paul liked them, they shared them. And it was a, it was a, it was a real collaboration. Um, and, and that's how out-of-the-box stuff came, up, came to be. Definitely. You know, people weren't interested in doing the same old stuff. Of course. And it's like, uh, who thinks about a particular character more than the person that portrays that character on the show. They think about that that their character more than anybody else. Right, so right. if anybody's going to have a good idea about what they would like to do, then it should be that person who's thinking about it more than anybody else. That's just my point of view. <laughs> um, or, or, at least, or at least it's a, or it's just a way to figure out, they, they may have an idea about how to better manifest it. Yes. You know, an idea is just an idea until it's processed and, put in i think i think the the um the talent in ecw learned to inhabit they didn't become their characters they inhabited their characters which is the difference just between when in other companies where they're handed a scripted promo yeah well then they're actually be stuff listen those guys aren't aren't i mean some of them have have um have real ability and potential to do film and television stuff but no one's trained to be an actor they have to do all they do and they have to be an actor too they have to transform. That's why that's why WWE has problems because they have guys who, if you would just let them be themselves, because I've seen them on the indies, they'd be massively successful. But they think they have to rename them, rebrand them, change what they are, change change even things that are successful. Oh, this worked in NXT. Well, that that's mine. We can't we can't allow ourselves to perceive that somebody who did something in NXT that that's what belongs on the big stage. Yeah. And and that's where and that's where and that's where the mistake is. They could have so many more stars and so many more crossover stars if they just paid attention. I mean, I look at I look at somebody like you know I look at somebody like the W. I look at somebody like Braun Strowman. Okay, they're going to remake the movie of the Princess Bride, and they need someone to be the giant guy. And of course, they do it with camera angles and whatever. But but he's funny. He's personable. He's got a great look. You know, they had this whole thing about, you know, what well, we're trying when, when uh, Nick Khan came in. Well, you know, we're going to brand our people and we're going to make them available for other things and cross them over into other entertainment mediums. 
You have people who were perfect for that, and those are the people they were cutting. Oh my God, I know, right? <laughs> you know, when you look when you look at it when you look at it that way, you sit there and go, well, why were you why are you doing that? Like, why can't you you can't see there's money in that? You know, it's so so you know the the lack of ego um in 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 the on that creative end in ecw was very was very key to its success absolutely steve and uh love love the love the uh point of view from you this is really interesting stuff uh i'm I really feel like i'm getting a different perspective i've had a bunch of ecw guys on the show but it's really nice getting your perspective on this um i wanted to get back to talking a bit about ring announcing here and i did this with bob artis Uh, he was the first ring announcer I've ever had on the show. You're uh-huh. the second. Um, but I wanted to list off some names of some uh-huh. other uh, ring announcers from wrestling history and just just get, uh, sure, you know, sure. a few few words from you about what you think of their work. Sure, sure, absolutely. So sure. I'll start off with, of course, the one and only Bob Artis. I Listen, Bob, Bob was terrific. He was authentically himself all the time which I think the fans in Philadelphia appreciated. Uh, and that's why he, I think that's why he succeeded in, in form because he was always consistently the same guy and he was accessible to the fans. He's kind. He's a true gentleman. I, I, you know, I can't say enough nice things about him, but I think that that was the key to his success was his accessibility and his authenticity. Definitely. You know, and, he, and he, and he had an appreciation. You no, know, Coming from the tri-state era, just seeing it grow to Eastern and then extreme and then all those things, he was the person who was there perhaps one of the longest on the entire journey. So he was, he was like their godfather in, in, in the ring. Yeah. Uh, and he was the, con- you know, he, if kids grew up with wrestling in Philadelphia, they grew up with Bob as their, as their guy. And so, and so, uh, but I, but I, I love Bob. I, you know, I, we come across each other on Facebook every so often and chat it up and stuff, but, uh, but, a, but a, ter- a terrific guy uh, and a terrific, um, and terrific talent and, and added a lot to the early days. Um, and I am, you know, as I said, I'm grateful to him for, for, um, for being so welcoming to me and supportive of me. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah. He, what a gentleman. I had him on the show. Absolutely. Very nice man. Very nice I, man. I, sure. um, moving away from ECW, I'm going to ask you about some other ring announcers. Just some yeah. thoughts uh, mm-hmm. from WCW uh, and I believe in NWA as well. Uh, Gary Michael Capetta. What do you think of him? Oh, I, I love I love Gary. I love Gary. Um, Gary, you know, Gary started in a different era than the ECW. He was pre the ECW era. But you know what, what, what Gary, Gary gave his own sense of theatricality to things. Um, he almost he almost approached it to me like he was the ringmaster, like the way a ringmaster would would uh, would introduce the circus. And I, I'm not calling the athletes a circus, but in terms yeah. of his his presentation of of making sure to from a 360 approach in the arena making sure that he was talking to everybody in the arena, not just the people in the, at the hard camera or in one direction. He always made sure to look around. If you look at old videos of him, he always looked around and looked at the, in the upper levels and he looked there and he would turn around, not during his intro, but when he would be in the ring, he would make sure to sort of make a 360 approach physically 
of the um, of the arena, and then would start. So he tried to he tried to hook in on them and acknowledge them before he started in the same way that someone might in a uh, in a in a in a you know in Ringling Brothers. Right, of course. It was subtle, but that was my. I was. I would look at him and go, "Oh, that's what he's doing." I don't know if he. I don't know if it, how conscious it was, but that's what it reminded me of. Excellent. Um, from the WWF, uh, the one and only Tony Chimmel. What do you think of Tony's work? Oh, I like. I like Tony. Uh, Tony. What I like about Tony was Tony had a regular everyman blue collar approach. <laughs> you know what I mean? He he dressed up. But he didn't seem like he was, you know, again, trying to make yourself seem more relatable and accessible. And I think that was, I think that was Tony's, um, Tony's gift, natural gift and approach. You know, Tony, Tony was there, you know, also Tony had other duties at WWE too, because with the ring crew and all these other things. So, you know, I admire that he was able to get so much done considering how much responsibility they kept piling up on him over and over again. But I, but again, um, uh, you know, the, the 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 every he was like the every man's ring announcer. Excellent, excellent. Uh, another one, uh, very beloved throughout the whole wrestling industry. You'll never forget him. The one and only Howard Finkel. There's no, there will never be anybody like Howard. Finkel. <laughs> yeah. There's Howard. There's Howard Finkel, and then there's everybody else. You know what I mean? I can't. I can't even like. You can't even like. If you were to like put a top five list of ring announcers, Howard would be one through five. Because he was classic. Yeah. And he was timeless. And he managed to, through all the permutations that WWE took as a brand and the way they presented himself, he was the spoke on which the wheel turned. Everything else could turn around him, but he was the steady. And he was consistent. And people knew, um, they knew him. And, and again, people grew up with him. And, and he was, a, listen, he was a great gentleman. He also had tons of other responsibilities. And, and, you know, and he, and you also knew that he generally loved being there. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't a job. It wasn't a job. Um, and so to me, you know, he, I mean, you know, if I could, I mean, I would always ask, you know, we, there were a few times when we've, we've passed each other and, and done things and, and we've always, but he's a lovely guy, a, a real loss. Uh, for the business, but really lost, real lost because I know he was a great friend to so many people in the business. Um, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of the wrestlers, you know, grew up with Howard Finkel. And yeah. then they're there going, oh my God, Howard Finkel's introducing me. <laughs> you know, to them, that, to them, Howard Finkel introducing them was more important than the matches they were doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's, and, you know, and that, that's the big compliment. Arri arriving in the big, I've arrived because Howard Finkel's interesting. That's exactly it. What a great point to make. And may he rest in peace. Uh, the, definitely the greatest of all time. Uh, no another question. guy I wanted to bring up, it's yeah. more kind of a late 90s WCW. Now he's in uh, Impact Wrestling. He's been there over the years. Yeah. Uh, the one and only Dave Penza. I, you know, I, I know Dave, we, our paths have crossed a few times. Uh, we were both, we did the, uh, the Brian Pillman Memorial Show. Ah, um, so that was where our paths crossed. Um, different, different styles. Um, to me, Dave's Dave's approach is to try to make the audience come to him, 
you know, by being standing there and being stoic and, and whatever and bringing them in, um, which is which is valid considering how over the top a lot of the gimmicks were in WCW at the time. You know, he was sort of like a reset button for them. All right. Before, before, before W, before the booking got so bad at WCW that things spiraled out of control, he was almost like, okay, that's over. Let's reset. And now let's have this experience. He, yeah. he helped, yeah. he made, he made WCW more episodic, I think, in the way their television and show and, and pay-per-views were in events were presented, which is just, again, it's a matter, it's a different taste, you know? Yep. Yeah. I get you. I, I like the analysis. That's really interesting uh, perspective. Again, I uh, wanted to bring this lady up uh, uh, for my recollection, probably, I guess, the most uh, well-known female ring announcer that there's ever been, uh, Lillian Garcia. Oh, well, Lillian, Lillian um, brought an element of glamour to ring announcing. Um, and she also brought, you know, her, you know, she couldn't help but bring her innate musicality, her background as a singer, to everything she did. So she presented it and made it seem like a special event because, you know, it was like she was fronting for an all-star band as a singer. And she was introducing the members of the band around. But she had, but that was, that was, that was a very special time for WB because, number one, it was about relatability and bringing uh, younger audiences in um but also what it said for about women in the business and also created relatability for women in the audience too so she was used very 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 important and always you know and the thing is as a singer she she had a consistency but being consistent is not does not mean being repetitive or boring or being on autopilot what was consistent about her was the amount of focus she had and the amount of um, authentic, I keep using the word authenticity, but the amount of realness that she had in terms of, of just, hi, this is me. She didn't have any, because the thing is, she didn't have anybody else to emulate, really. There was nobody out there that you could say, okay, I want you to be that. She, she could only be, she could only be a little English. Definitely. And that's where she really shined. Um, I wish that the WWE had given her more um, opportunity to sing and perform. Yeah. I think that would have been, I think that could have been, I think that could have been really, I think that could have been really something. Um, and I could have, it could have been an interesting creative possibility for them maybe. Definitely. I mean, look, I'm Australian. And when she sings the United States national anthem or America, the beautiful gives me goosebumps and I'm not even American. So, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. um, only a couple more people I wanted to ask you about. Uh, this guy's a little bit different. He's no, mostly in the boxing world, but he was in WCW uh, for a brief period of time there. Michael Buffer. Uh, <laughs> I wish I felt like Michael Buffer was there because he really enjoyed wrestling. I wish he knew where he was, that he was there because he wanted to be there. Yeah. It's like a traveling band who shows up and goes, it's so great to be in Poughkeepsie. <laughs> like he didn't, he never, he never was somewhere. Oh, it's too late to be in Boise, Idaho. It's a, it was always, it was so mechanical 
that it didn't seem like he really knew what it is was the importance of what it was he was announcing because he would only do the main events and yet i felt like okay you you got the cute someone sent you an email and told you who's there and then you just did it you know there was no <laughs> i mean the, the the breaths were exactly the same place the pauses were in exactly the same place and if they thought that gave them authenticity because he came from the boxing world, so it made them feel more legit as a sport, um, I don't know that that was necessarily successful. I think I think that what they did was it 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 it, it took away the emotional investment for the audience sometimes, and it can be presentational. I, I guess you know, listen, it worked. God bless him; he's made a lot of money. Um, they want, they wanted him because he was yet another recognizable name or perceived to be a star on some level. Um, but I don't know, I don't know ultimately whether it had the effect that they hoped that they had by investing that much money. Absolutely. I, just, I, I found it to be, I found, I, I could, I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's one difference from one Michael Buffer introduction to another one. I can't, I can't think of one. If you can think of one, let me know. Cause I'd be <laughs> curious. Uh, but I, I just thought it was very, you know, very very premeditated the thought you know the thoughts have to come from your head to your voice he was all <laughs> like you know reading the cue card in his head that's it you know and, and and to me that wasn't my that 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 wouldn't have been that wouldn't have been my choice because i think it i i don't i don't know how that enhanced anybody really I understand. And, and Bob, when I when I went through these names with Bob Artis, he this is the only person on the list, just like you, that wasn't glowing with compliments as well. So right, 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 it, right, interesting right. to see the two ring announcers from ECW and uh, how similar your thoughts are. Uh, the last person I wanted to bring up is uh, this is strange because like I always knew the ring announcers names so through all the years through ECW, WCW, WWF, Lillian, Tony, Howard. And then there was this one other guy that I'm going to bring up. But then after him, I can't remember anyone else's name. And it's not any of their fault. I'm sure that they're quite good at what they do. But the company wasn't really giving out the names of even referees anymore. But and, and, the, and to that end with the referee, I was like, well, how am I supposed to accept someone being an authority figure in the match with power to disqualify and the match and separate the guys and count and honor their count. If you won't tell me their names as a referee, yeah. if you won't give them the authority and the recognition, how can you think I, how can I think that they're going to have the rec, the authority to really make an impact on this match? That's it. And so I, so I think that's, I think that's part of it. I understand the idea of maybe not interesting ring announcer. That's, that's fine. You know, we're the, you know, we're the, on a platter, we're the parsley, we're the garnish. We make the plate look pretty. We may or might have a little nutritional value, but we're not. But we're not. We're not the side dishes, and we're not the main course. We're the garnish. But the referees certainly are more, much more important than that. Definitely, definitely. I could rattle off every I, Scott Dickinson from WCW, Billy Silverman, Nick Patrick, Charles Robinson from the WWE, Mike Sparks, uh, uh, Mike Kyoto, Earl Hebner, uh, ECW. John Finnegan, Mike Keener, uh, Jim Molyneux, uh, all of these names. I can remember all of them. Oh, yes, Pee Wee Moore. I can remember everyone's names, but now don't know any of the referees' names, don't know any of the ring announcers' names. But the last guy whose name is still remembered is Justin Roberts. He's currently with um, AEW. What do you think sure, of Justin sure, sure. Roberts? Um, listen, I met I met Justin twice. 
uh, always great. I love his energy. I love his passion. You know, he came from from being a fan, like a legitimate fan. So he was he was pretty much he was born to do this. I mean, I don't know. I don't know a lot about Justin to know what his other skills are. But if someone was born to do this because of his of his care and his love of it so much, it's Justin, I think. Um, and I will say also, you know, he doesn't get credit for it enough. But, you know, Justin was instrumental in that whole uh, the whole WB relationship with Conor Mahalik. Yeah, and was very involved with that. And there would be no Conor's cure, I don't believe, without Justin. So while he doesn't get credit for it um, as a person, uh, I think, you know, that to me is a, that to me is enough. That shows who he is as a human being. So while I don't know him and I, you know, and I enjoy his work and all those things, but but as a human being and for his sensitivity and his empathy, um, I, I think I think very highly of him as a person. Excellent, Stephen. Well, thank you so much for the insight and all of those ring announcers. I really found that interesting. It's like you, you went through it like like it's like a, with a fine tooth comb, like it's a science behind it. So I was really uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, I, I want to get back to a little bit of ECW chat before we get to the tail end here. Uh, Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Were you there for that show? No, I was. I was not there. I was not so there. Bob wasn't no, either. <laughs> Who was? No, I know. I know. I, I, I think someone did the announcements from behind the curtain. Okay. I think they just did the announcements from behind the curtain. And I think they put a voice modulator or something on it so you wouldn't recognize who it was. Okay. And, uh, and that's how it happened. No, I, I, had, I, had, I had no clue. Um, and that was, I, thought, I think that was a situation where I think I was not available that weekend too. Like I had no clue. Like if someone had tipped me off at all, I certainly might have been there, but I, I, had no, I had no idea. You know, at that time, you know, at that time, we were still working on, on trying to save ECW. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to say, I want to say one thing about the end of ECW, because I think, because it's something that I have knowledge of that a lot of people may or may not know, but a lot of people, you know, have that whole perception of Paul was out shooting rollerball when he was supposed to be saving ECW and he didn't go, you know, he didn't do this and he didn't do that. The truth is this, I was involved with Rollerball on the casting end. The casting director was a friend of mine. She said, we need different announcers from different countries. You know somebody, you know different wrestling announcers from around the world, you know, in different countries. And so I taught, and I, Paul auditioned initially when they shot Rollerball. At the time when ECW was folding, um, they made a decision not to have an American announcer in that announcer in that movie at all. It was just going to be all foreign voices or maybe someone from London, you know, that kind of thing, but, but no American voices. When they test screened it, they found that the audience wanted one. So they then had to go in and do reshoots. When those reshoots happened and Paul was involved in rollerball, they didn't happen in California. They happened. They, 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 um, they shipped the sets to New York. Paulie recorded all those segments in New York a good year after that movie. He'd already started that with WB by then. Right. So when, so when people talk about, you know, Paulie gave up the ship and deserted everybody and, and wasn't trying to save ECW because he was shooting rollerball. He absolutely was not shooting rollerball. And it can be documented. If you went to the film commission and you went and looked 
for a certificate of because you have to be licensed to shoot and file with all the unions, you could find the exact period of when when those reshoots took and what studio they took place at. So I, I just wanted to do that and clear the air because I know that has always bothered me when I hear people talk about it. And it's because they hear it from somebody else. Yeah. And they say, you know, and, and Paul, Paul's never corrected it, but I'm going to correct it because I think he's gotten a bad rap in that end. I know that he, you know, he was dealing with tons of politics at the networks and, you know, a couple of bad bounces with, you know, executive changes. And, and that's ultimately was the issue. It had nothing to do with his efforts on, in any way. And, and um, I don't, I don't, I believe he, he gave everything he had uh, at that point in time. And certainly, and, and if he had other things that distracted from that, it's, it hundred percent was not rollable. So. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway, well, I'm sorry. So, so I, now, now I'll get back to you, answer your question if I can remember what it was. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. We, we've kind of covered it. Um, I actually forgot something that I wanted to ask you about because everybody that was at this show, I always ask about because we want to do a big video where we have everybody talk about this particular oh. event. Heatwave 2000. I believe you're ring announcing on the show and there is a ruckus with uh, the XPW <laughs> guys in the front row. Uh, can you please tell me just your story from your perspective, what you saw happen um, during that main I, event? It was interesting because, um, God, what was the name of the, the first, the first message boards that were on before there was an AOL. What was it? Called? I can't remember what it was called. Why can't I remember what it was called? Showing my age. Um, there was a guy, I knew something was up because there was a guy on a message board that was a big XPW fan who was talking about stuff's going to go down at the event, da, da, da. Uh, it was Rex, Rexport Pro Wrestling, I guess was, was, was what it called, the channel. And so I started talking to this guy, and, but he did know, not know who I was. And so he, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're gonna do, you know, we're, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna disrupt the, we're gonna disrupt the pay per view, you know. And I was like, oh, okay. So I said, hey, I might want to join you. What do we? They said, oh, we're gonna do flyers. We're gonna do whatever. So that, so we did that, and then, um, and so I, I sort of was tipped. I said, hey, you know, this is this chatter out there, and so we were at the event, and then of course we we saw them there because we got tipped off. Uh, someone in our locker room knew them and some of the guys, and said, oh, they're in the front row. So we knew. Um, I, you know, so, so we kept our eye on them the whole time. Uh, and then, you know, I was ringside and I was on the other side. Of course, um, you know, Gorgeous George was in, at the match, you know, involved in the match. And I just met George that night. Um, so when it all came down, I immediately ran, got to ringside, you know, I was at ringside, but I ran around the other side to protect George, to be, to have someone there with George, because I thought she's the only one vulnerable in this match, you know, cause she came out with, you know, she came up in dreamer and then did the turn thing. But so I, that, that was my, so my perspective was obviously wasn't in the ring when it happened. I was, it was, you know, I was, I, I headed towards the floor, towards George, but I've never seen big guys move so fast. That's my impression. My impression is Sally Graciano and Chili Willie were the two fastest human beings I've ever seen coming through that curtain and flying, fly, flying. I mean, from the end of the entranceway around the guardrail to where those guys were in the center. I mean, it couldn't have taken us two seconds. 
<laughs> they were they were the first ones through. I was like, oh my god, and I it was after I was like, I was like, oh my god, I guess Chili Willie's going to get a push now because <laughs> he was so. I mean, he was so so plus. Um, but I remember I remember the story that um, you know, of course, it all spilled out into the parking lot, and you know, normally, you know, Paul's on the headset backstage, you know, and being gorilla. And Nova was in the shower and Nova comes out and there's nobody in the locker room. <laughs> He's in a towel and he sees this, this speaker thing and he, he puts it on. I was like, Hey, is anybody there? What's going on? He's watching the show. I was like, what's happening? But uh, you know, I stayed, you know, I stayed ringside obviously for the whole thing, but that was, that was, um, that was crazy. That was, that was, that was crazy. And I, um, I just remember that it got heated really fast. It wasn't a slow, it wasn't a slow burn. Yeah. Whatever, whatever happened was on both sides was totally reactionary, <laughs> you know, in terms of, in terms of just that quick, you know, and, uh, you know, I've run into some of those guys over the years and, uh, you know, they were, they were, you know, every side was, everyone was trying to protect their turf. You know, I think, I think they were trying to, you know, trying to help their, their own cause. Um, but it was, it was it was quick. It was quick. I can't even. I'm trying to think of, you know, it, it, it was a it was a big blur. And then of course I kept thinking. Oh, the other thing that people don't talk about is when people were making entrances. I don't know if you noticed, but they were dropping flyers, XPW flyers, over the entranceway. Ah, uh, right. Down onto them. But I um. But I rem remember thinking to myself, Oh my God. This is a diversion, and the real. Then they've got something else planned in the arena, right? <laughs> like they're going to pull everyone's attention here, and something else is. They have something bigger planned. It's too obvious. It's too easy. We know they're there. They've got the shirt. They turn them up. We've identified them. I kept thinking there might be something else. There wasn't. Smart thinking would have meant that they would have been, but there was not any. Uh, thank God. Um, but that I was like that was. I, you know, I came back afterwards, and of course, by the time the match was over, the the parking lot stuff was over too. But that was that was that was uh, that was yeah that that was a bit of a blur. But I remember, <laughs> but I remember, but I remember seeing Sal and 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 Chili Willie flying, just <laughs> flying, you know. And and the thing about the ECW locker room is that locker room is united. No matter what your history is, whether you whether someone's your friend in real life or an acquaintance or you they're not your personal taste and you don't hang out with them. If something happened ever, everybody could count on everyone else. Definitely. There, was no, there were no, there were never any questions asked. They, they jumped in. You want, you know, you need me on there. They were, you know, they were, they were, they're a band of brothers. And I see that now still, you know, when I, when I'm on different shows or if I go to a convention here or there and I'm there and the, you see them and you see everyone reunite and it's like a family it's like a family reunion excellent to yeah. hear and uh, thanks for that perspective uh, that's the first time i heard about nova was in the shower whilst all this happened yeah. and uh -huh. walked yeah. into an empty locker room or whatever yeah. backstage yeah. With, area. with the headset with the headset sitting there when you interview him, ask him about it. He'll tell you. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll keep chipping away. Hopefully one day I can uh, get in touch with him. Um, 
But uh, thanks for that perspective, Stephen. Awesome stuff. Uh, wanted to bring it back to the end of ECW. Once it's once it's confirmed that it's actually over, how did it make you feel? <clears throat> You're used to seeing your big family of of uh, friends on such a, a you know on, you know such a, a constant uh, level and. Now you're not going to see them every week, several times a week. Now it's gone. You might see them if you do some shots on the indies as a ring announcer, etc. But it won't be everybody. How did it make you feel kind of uh, losing that, I guess, family environment every few days? You know, I, I was saddened because I thought, you know, the, the, all those guys deserve the opportunities they were being afforded. And I thought, oh, my goodness. There are guys here who have made all these sacrifices and their families have also shared in that sacrifice and they may never get a chance to be on the level they deserve to be and to make the kind of money that they deserve to be and to have their dream come true and to be acknowledged for what they've done and how they've contributed to the business because, you know, ECW changed the business. And yet, because of different situations and politics and personalities, someone may never get that opportunity again. I was, I was, I was saddened. I was saddened for them. For me, it was never my intention to to be involved in wrestling. So, you know, I, I'm I'm very happy with my career, uh, and uh, and you know, in my producing and, and doing do, producing Broadway concerts and and doing different things. And and so for me, it's a chance to blow off some steam and have some fun and enjoy and really appreciate um, the guys. But it was really just sad for me that they might not have their opportunity. You know, after after being so much, and 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 would they would only not have the opportunity because people wouldn't have enough vision to be able to see them for what they were, had to offer, and that was yeah. that was that was the sad part for me. I completely understand. Um, speaking of the word "stand," uh, <laughs> I wanted to bring it to two thousand and five. Uh, I wanted to talk about ECW One Night Stand Hammerstein Ballroom. This is. This is me. My friends bought the pay-per-view. You know, I don't know how old we were at the time, 2005. Oh, Jesus, that's 16 years ago. So I was, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> quite some time ago. But a uh, very memorable show for all of us fans. Uh, how did it feel to be in that environment again? Did it feel like that old, authentic ECW feel? You're in New York. You're in the Hammerstein Ballroom. You got everyone, everyone that you possibly can get there. Unfortunately, not everyone could be on the show. But how did ECW One Night Stand, the first one that came around, how did that feel? Well, I, I was just so happy for the fans. Yeah. Because, you know, while the wrestlers get closure, even more so the fans didn't get closure. The fans never got acknowledged for their dedication and for their role in what ECW grew to become. And so to me, I thought, well, this is really, this is really for the fans. This is a chance to thank the fans. This is a chance, and this is a chance to remind everybody that, hey, you know, ECW did change the business. And ECW was important. And you can try to make believe that it didn't, but I don't think Steve Austin would ever have drank a beer if it weren't for the Sandman. There's a million things that I could point to that, that ECW started influenced and then other people co-opted, modified or whatever. I mean, the way the matches are paced, all the, I mean, all that stuff. So um, I thought that was a, it was a great acknowledgement um, of, of where things, you know, could be going. It's interesting. I'll say, I'll, I'll share a little something. Um, 
the original script for ECW One Night Stand actually ended was in the script, but they didn't do it that way. They changed it. Was Paul and Vince backstage and Vince saying, gee, Paul, maybe ECW is not dead after all. Oh, really? They didn't, as you know, they didn't end the, they didn't end it that way or whatever. But that was, that was my first hint that maybe there would be something else moving on, you know, it took a year later for them to do it. But, uh, but there was like a, there was like a hint of, of like maybe promise of something, or maybe they were just going to bring some ECW guys and they wanted to acknowledge it, you know, on some level, but that was in the, that was in the script. In fact, the script is in storage at my dad's house up in Rhode Island. I have it up there. No. That is an exclusive right here. As far as I'm, I've never heard that story before. So for me, that that is amazing to hear. That I can't believe that that was potentially. I also, I also something interesting when they sent me my when they sent me my contract <laughs> to do the first one night stand. They sent me a contract as a wrestler. They sent me one of the wrestlers. <laughs> so I have a so I have a signed. It's like sign this and send it back to us. We've already signed. It. So I have a signed WD contract offering me to wrestle on one night stand. <laughs> So that's enough. That's enough. That's enough in storage too. But I always thought I got offered a wrestling contract by WWE. I've never <laughs> taken it off, but I, I, but I have it. That's amazing, Steve. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to bring it up. It is 2006. They do do the second one night stand. I know it's not the same as the first one. They got some more WWE guys on the show, like your, you know, your Kurt Angles, which is that. That's a welcome addition. Uh, but. Um, you know, the ECW is going to be returning soon after this. Uh, but I, I know that this is probably this is a pretty big moment for you uh, to be a part of this show. You know, at the end of the show, what do we get to see? We get to see Rob Van Dam beat John Cena for the championship and 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 bring back the ECW championship. Uh, how was this day for you? Um, listen, I was happy for Rob. I was so happy for Rob. Um, I was, again, happy for the fans. Because again, it's an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement that the ECW guys were at the level of the WWE guys and should be treated that way and respected. And so it, I think it enhanced everybody and to see that was great. Um, it was, you know, it was an interesting night. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get into, I'm, I'm sure I know where you're headed, but you know, that day <laughs> um, I saw the other guys and I said, to Paul, I said, hey, Paul, there's so much WWE guys here. Should I WWE it up a little bit and take some of my intensity out? Should I change, modify myself? And Paul said, listen, I don't know. You know, he said, I, he said, he said, that's your call. He said, I always tr you know, trust you. And I said to him at the time, I said, you know, I said, this might be very well the last chance that uh, to be authentic. Yeah. Like, yeah. Once we're on television, then Vince is really involved. I said, and they're, pro they're programming now. They're not writing scripts. They're not developing their program. I said, so I'm going to go ahead and I said, I'm going to give, give, do it the way I would traditionally do it. Um, and I did. And then after the show, you know, and I was told, you know, you're booked on all these shows. Here's, you know, you go, here's the TV tapings on Tuesday in New Jersey. Here's the whole thing. Uh, as I am wont to do, because of my entertainment background, I went around, I went and thanked everybody. I actually went to the production truck and thanked Kevin Dunn. And he shook my hand. He said, great job tonight. 
you know, he said, he said, you're with us Tuesday, aren't you? And I said, I said, oh, yeah, I said, I said, I'll be there. I said, what time do you want me there? He said, oh, you know, he said, like, if you're there by three, that's great. I said, great. No problem. Um, and then, you know, so all, all was good. And then somehow between Sunday night and Tuesday, they had decided that, you know, they were always paying Justin Roberts. You know, Justin was doing, you know, main event and doing the other TV shows and was a backup guy. So he was already there. They're paying him already. So I think someone went and went, well, we got this younger guy. We want to rebrand this thing and whatever. But, you know, they, they didn't, you know, they didn't think about it. You know, I, listen, I have no problem. If they, they, it's their show, they can do what they want. You know, do I wish I could have had a shot to do a chance to do that show in Madison Square Garden? Yes. Do I wish that I had not canceled plans because they had promised me certain shows? You know, do I think I could have made a difference when they went to Philadelphia to the arena the first time and that crowd was merciless to oh, Justin Roberts. What I think they were horribly brutal to him. Oh gosh. I, I, I could have been of service, I think, in terms of getting the, that crowd to to um to accept him and sooner. Uh, and I would have and I would have happily done that. Um, but there was a decision, you know, all of a sudden I'm there and all of a sudden I get, you know, Justin Roberts, please come to ringside, I hear. And then someone comes and gets me and walks me to the back. And I'm like, uh-oh. So I walk to the back and they say, oh, you know, you're done. You're, we're not going to use you, you know. We're, you know, you're done and we're not going to be using you. And uh, we'll be in touch if we need you for like Philadelphia and these other things. So they still scattered around the fact that maybe they would have nothing, but I wasn't going to be doing the TV that night. So I said at the time, I said, well, you know, I said, if you're going to do this thing on sci-fi, I have an idea. So if you're going to replace me with Justin, you should, um, we should do the Star Trek thing. I should be backstage and you should beam me out and beam Justin. You know, like when somebody transport, teleport. Yeah. <laughs> if you can teleport me out and teleport, we have to do it in the right, do, do something. I said, you're on sci-fi. <laughs> and they laughed and went, nah, we, we can't, I can't discuss that with anybody. I was like, oh, okay. So this is too late, or whatever. I was like, okay. I said, just being creative. I said, no, it's really a shame though. I said, because, you know, I mean, I've, I will tell you that like in my career as a casting director, I mean, I've hired over 100,000 actors in my career, you know, and a lot of it. So I have a lot of celebrity friends who are, um, who are, you know, there. And, uh, and I talked to them about ECW and, and it's on sci-fi and they said that they would come on the show. And these are major names that would have crossed over and they would have been in the audience. They would have come to the show and agreed to whatever. So we're like, great. So, but I hadn't talked to anybody about it. So I said, you know, it's really, a sh I was talking, I'll tell you who I was. The person who walked me back was Laurenitis. And so Lauren and I just walks me back to get paid. And I said, you know, this is really a shame. He said, he said well, you know, kid, I know how you, you feel it's a shame. I said, it's not a shame for me. It's a shame for you. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, well, I said, you have no idea what I really do in my career or my connections. I said, the same way you don't know what other people do here other than what you tell them to do. I said, but I have the connections with this person. And I've talked to them. I said, he goes, oh, that would be fucking great. Can we still do it? I said, well, now you can't. <laughs> I said, they're not going to do it for you. I said, I'm not going to call their, I wouldn't call their agents and ask them to do it. They would do it together, call them at home and, uh, and do that. And, uh, and so that's what, and so it never happened, but they would have been, they were really great, fun, creative ideas. And it would have addressed that whole sci-fi aspect. 
Wow. You know? Can you hold, hold on a second? I'll, I'll yeah, be sure. Sit here. Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm just. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm. I'm just being recorded in an interview. My daughter. I have to drive her somewhere. So. So. Yes. No yeah. worries, Stephen. We're, we're getting so, close. Anyway, to so you. no, I'm. I'm cool. I'm cool. But anyway, but but that's but that but that's that's how that ended. And I, you know, very sadly drove home. And of course, I watched the show, and I was like, okay, you were right. This is there's a freaking zombie, in the ring. <laughs> and I loved him, the late Tim Arson. He was a great guy, and I'm glad he got an opportunity, and he was able to mine that for some, some gigs on the indies. But I thought, okay, the minute you took the Sandman's music away, yeah. the minute you changed those things, you changed those characters, I'm happy the guys that made money. Um, but I would not... Um, you know, it was interesting. I mean, it was an interesting experience. It was interesting. Uh, I will give... I want to give one... Before you get to your other thing, I want to give one brief shout-out. The first person to reach out to me after that happened and called me when I was in my car and checked up on me every day for weeks was Francine. Okay. Francine as a human being is a top notch woman. Always was as a performer, always was. But to me, if you said to me, who's the most, who's the kindest person in the business that you've come across? Not only because of that, but for everything before that, I would tell you, Francine. Oh, that's nice so of I, her. I wanted, so I wanted, so I want to acknowledge that, you know. And then one day she called me, and she was with Jazz. She and Jazz both called me together. <laughs> they were together in the airport, and they called me, flying somewhere. So, so it was very. So I, I just want to thank her. I'll publicly thank her for her thoughtfulness and her kindness. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that story, there, Steve. And. Um, the, the, the I knew you were going. I knew you were going there anyway. So I thought, let me, let me, because I, mean, I, I know in your head you're going. How do I say this? How do I phrase this? How do I ask this? I, yeah, you know. Well, here's the thing. As a fan, when I was watching it, mm-hmm. first red flag, you're not going to be ring announcing. Second red flag, all of a sudden Atlas Security aren't there. Third red flag. Now the now the ECW referees are slowly but surely disappearing. I think I think John was there for a bit, but the other guys kind of uh, disappeared as well. Um, so like I could see this happening, and I'm like, don't do it again, don't break my heart again, because I always say this when I have the chance to. WWE broke my heart when they ruined the invasion angle. Strike one. They ruined the NWO coming in, strike two. And then when they promised ECW and didn't deliver ECW, strike three. Since then, I haven't really watched it on the level that I did back then. And that's 16 years ago when I'm still doing a podcast 16 years later about something that I love. Wrestling hasn't loved me the way that I've loved it is what I'm trying to I, say. I, you know, I, I knew I was the first, but I said to everybody, I said, guys, I'm the first, I'm not the last. Yeah. I'm the first. I'm not the last. I said that's. I said. I said. I. It pains me to say that to you. I said, but be aware. Be vigilant because I. I you know. I will not be the. You know. I. I will not. I would not be the last. Day. And that's. You know. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. You know. It, it ultimately, listen. I believe me. I have a busy enough career. Trying to juggle. <laughs> trying to be available for those shows. That was like. Oh my god. That was. I'm. I'm like. It. It, it turned out. It turned out for the best. I would rather be had my head fry head held high pridefully and say i was on that that pay-per-view when rob won the belt yeah. if that's my last ww you know i i wanted to be on an ecw show i didn't want to be on a wwe ecw show yeah definitely and uh one thing i wanted to say because uh yeah. this is important for me to say things like yeah. this um 
uh, the news reports I remember reading at the time, you know, on the dirt sheets and all that. It was that, that Kevin Dunn apparently thought that your voice was annoying. Uh, if that's true, I just want to say this to Kevin Dunn. Kevin, I think it's really annoying when, like, there's a brawl on the outside of the ring and you make the camera zoom in and out like that. I think that's annoying. I also think it's annoying the way that you you make the show looks way too uh, glossy and nice, and 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 the way that you produce the show, uh, it, it's not Monday Night Raw anymore. It's Monday Night Contrived. Uh, you can put a video screen on everything, ring posts. You can put it on the barricades if you want. You can put it on everything that you can put the video screens on people's faces uh, in the crowd. There, as far as I'm concerned, bro, you're annoying. Stephen DeAngelis is not. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> not a problem, sir. Um, okay, getting towards the tail end here. Um, you were a part of the initial Major League Wrestling MLW. Absolutely. Um, I remember being in Australia at the time, knowing MLW was around and and having no way of, of getting to see any of the footage. Uh, so this is, you know, the early 2000s. Um, you're a part of it then. I was so excited about it. It did go away, unfortunately, before I got to see any of it. But I thought, like, from what I was reading online, it sounded really exciting. You it got was, to return. It was very exciting. And, it, and, yeah. it, and it, only went, it only went away because of the way things were going, because a lot of the investors and interest in the show were international because it had a mm. success in Japan. And at the time, there was a lot of issues with when you brought money into the United States from different countries, right? So everything's under question. So there was just such a lag time between being able to do finance internationally that I, that's really what slowed MLW down from my estimation, because how do you do it? Yeah. If someone can, someone can if, if, if someone said, okay, we're gonna pay you for your merchandise and you send the merchandise and then someone wires you money and then the money has to sit there and you don't know how long the money's gonna sit there before you can pay your bills. What do you do? You know, you're trapped. So that, that's yeah. what I think needed MLW originally. I'm very happy it's back. I'm very happy to have been doing shows with them recently. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're rejiggering their schedule. So we'll see what happens for the future, though. Uh, you know, though I've been said, hey, are you available, you know, through March and, and whatever? We'll see. But they move shows to Dallas from Philly and different things. So, you know, we'll see whether the schedule works out. But, I, you know, I, I have great admiration for what they've done and what they it's do right. and how they make so much. They, they make they make they make so much more out of less resources and somehow they managed to yeah i just saw a picture the other day where they had five thousand people in one of the buildings and i was like that is mm -hmm. i'm so happy to see that um right, 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 right. well they have a quality they you know they you know also they do their homework and they also aren't afraid to hire new guys and develop new guys knowing that someone with a bigger pocketbook is going to steal them doesn't deter them you know mjf mjf was it was there first look at all the guys who were there sammy guevara was there first darby allen was there before there was an aew you know the aew should be writing a commission check to mlw <laughs> pillman jr yeah mm -hmm. true, true. All, all that all that so um here's the deal i have like five minutes before i have to drive my daughter okay so do you want to okay. do you want to pick this back up or do you want to or do you want to go down your I, rundown i can wrap this up now steve and okay. i only had okay. a couple more questions anyway okay. um sure. Before I, I get to this, that. I, I that's okay. That's okay. Um, I'm going to get to this segment, Five Second Frenzy, five seconds to answer each question. So we should be able to get through it. Uh -huh, sure. First question here, Stephen, who is your favorite wrestler? Terry Funk. Over the years, um, 
you know, was there a favorite uh, match that you saw in ECW or a favorite moment in, in, in your time? Um, funk in the box. <laughs> Do you remember the funk in the box moment? Yes. Wonderful. Okay. Getting away from wrestling now. Favorite book. Um, God, favorite book. That was the last book I read. The Godfather. Wonderful. Uh, favorite TV show? Um, this week, um, this week's the new Dexter. Excellent. Dexter Excellent. On Showtime. Very nice. Uh, favorite film? Princess Bride. Lovely, lovely. Uh, favorite musical artist? Oh, God. Favorite musical artist? Um, wow, I've got so many. That's a tough one. <laughs> I, I'm 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 screwing up the five seconds. Um, favorite musical artist, um, Prince. Awesome choice, awesome choice. Getting away from the arts, only a few left here. Favorite food? Uh, spaghetti meatballs. Lovely. <laughs> favorite place to eat on the road? Um, Waffle House. <laughs> Everyone says it. <laughs> uh, favorite alcoholic beverage? Um, a shot of peach nuts. Very nice. Uh, second last one, Stephen, the naughtiest one. Favorite female body part. You see a good looking lady. What does Stephen DeAngelis' eyes go to first? Uh, the eyes. Very good choice. Very good choice. And the last one, Stephen, favorite curse word. Oh fuck! I, I, I mean, is there any? It's like it's like fuck is like the Howard Finkel of curse words. Like there's that, and then there's everybody else, right? So, uh, how do you even have another? How do you even have a second choice? <laughs> excellent Stephen well I think that's record time there for five second frenzy you did a very good job there last question before we sail off to the sunset what do you hope Stephen DeAngelis is most remembered for in his time in pro wrestling um creating opportunity for talented people Wonderful. Well, Stephen, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show with me. I know we went a little bit long here. I'm sorry to your daughter for, okay. for holding you up a little bit, but I really want to thank you. And I, I always say this when, you know, it means the most. I live in the most isolated city in the world, Perth, Western Australia. And I think that speaks volumes, the fact that it reached so far. You reached so far, all the way over here, most isolated city in the world. And someone was a fan of your work and what you've done. So I hope you're very proud of what you've accomplished in, in professional wrestling. Uh, and I hope you're very proud of what you've accomplished in life because everything that you seem to have done, it, 100,000 people you've hired for things, make a wish and, and making kids last wishes come true that means a lot so from the bottom of my heart thank you uh for for being on this planet my friend well i thank carl i thank you for anything any anytime you need me for anything reach out uh it was a it was a pleasure and i thank you for the opportunity no worries, Stephen. Thank you. And thank you, everyone out there, for watching the Insider's Edge podcast here. I'm California, alongside Stephen DeAngelis, and we will see you down the road. Thank you. <laughs>